Welcome to Mind Love, episode 306. Today's episode is all about stoicism for self-inquiry, inner discipline, and seeing through our self-distorted perceptions. We reject often our best thoughts, our first thoughts, our, our, our original genius, the things that are most particular and unique to us for no other reason than that they are ours. We tend to undervalue ourselves. And so one of Emerson's big teachings around originality as well as nonconformity is learning to trust our original nature, to trust our unique voice. Uh, and that takes work. Buckminster Fuller, the th systems theorist, said everyone is born a genius, but the process of living degeniuses us. We get degeniused by the desire for approval, the impulse to conform, and conditioning education that doesn't teach us to trust what's unique to us. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. You know that feeling, right? When you're stuck in a loop of worries, imagining all sorts of disastrous scenarios, and feeling your anxiety rise? Or when you find yourself catastrophizing, like blowing the tiniest things completely out of proportion. If this resonates with you, well, you're not alone. It's a pretty common human tendency, yet it can be awfully draining and even harmful if we allow ourselves to be consumed by it. There's an ancient wisdom that's been around since the time of the ancient Greeks that might help you rewire this negative thinking. And it's all about altering our perspective for the better just as we like to do here at Mind Love. This wisdom finds its roots in stoicism, and it's a little thing known as premeditation. But it's more than just a trick, it can actually be life-changing. So what is stoicism all about? Well, at its core, stoicism is a philosophy that empowers us to choose our judgments. Stoics believe that nothing in this vast universe is intrinsically good or bad, value or valueless. It's actually us, the humans, who assign these labels. Remember what Shakespeare's Hamlet said? There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So what he's essentially saying is that our minds are the artists who paint our experiences as either good or bad. Now here's the magic of it all. Since we have control over our minds, we have the power to influence our feelings, especially the negative ones. In other words, stoicism sheds light on that little space that exists between the events we experience and how we interpret them. Let's paint a picture here. Imagine someone throws an insult your way and calls you a, a dumbass. <laughs> In that seemingly insignificant yet potent moment, you have the chance to hit the pause button and ask yourself, how will I judge this? You can also take it a step further and think, how will I respond? Or here's my favorite reflection exercise. Does this remark tell more about them or more about me? Or for an even kinder perspective, does this say more about me as a person or does it reflect what they're currently going through? There are all sorts of ways that you can challenge your thoughts a little bit. 
But ultimately, we hold the reins when it comes to which thoughts we fuel with our emotional and behavioral energy. Powerful stuff, isn't it? So Stoicism isn't just some ancient philosophy. It's even influenced a highly effective therapeutic approach called cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's actually a pretty practical mindset reframe that can help us navigate life more easily. So today we're diving into all that Stoicism has to offer us with Mark Matusik. He's an award-winning author, teacher, and speaker whose work focuses on transformative writing for personal, professional, and spiritual development. He's the founder of The Seekers Forum, an online community for writing and self-inquiry, and the author of eight books, including Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. Three key things we will learn are how self-inquiry can help us see ourselves more clearly, how crisis and disaster can be liberating, and how our shadow parts can be a guide for growth. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Mark Matusik to the show. Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. So what led your interest in Stoicism? Well, I grew up uh, with a lot of difficulties in, in the family home, and I was looking from a really young age for ways to find my way through a lot of chaos and confusion and adversity. Uh, and so I wanted a philosophy that could that was practical and that could help me kind of clear away a lot of the things I didn't understand about the world I was growing up in. So when I discovered Emerson when I was in uh, college, uh, it was a huge awakening for me because I realized that there were very hands-on practical lessons that we could apply to the you know the difficulties of of a crazy world and, and a difficult life. Many of us grew up in dysfunctional families uh, and I'm no exception. So for me, stoicism was a lifeline to pull myself up out of a lot of trauma and suffering around me. Why do you think the world in its current state could benefit from the philosophy of stoicism? Well, the premise of stoicism is learning to optimize negative states of of mind so to when you find yourself in the midst of adversity how can you turn the obstacle upside down as the stoics said how can you use the adversity as uh the to uh, to become the solution itself uh, and that's what a lot of us are trying to do these days because obviously the world uh, is a mess uh, and there's a lot of danger we're at a real inflection point as a democracy. And so people want a, a sturdy rope to hold on to. And that's what stoicism is. It gives you very practical, uh, spiritual exercises uh, for dealing with the uncertainties and the sometimes overwhelming uh, confusions of the the contemporary world. Yeah, I I feel like so often our natural tendencies as a society 
go in the opposite direction of what's actually good for us. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and that's what happens when we lose our spiritual footing, which is the basis of my new book about Emerson, is that we've lost our philosophical grounding as a culture. And so when materialism takes over, when egotism takes over, uh, and we lose a sense of there being a power that's larger than we are, whatever you want to call that power, uh, we're doomed. You know, we're lost. And th the problem is that we tend to sink to the lowest common denominator uh, as human beings. So until unless we have a kind of a higher calling or a message that elevates us and pulls us beyond our, our selfishness uh, and our egotism, then we tend to just go in the in in the direction of of least resistance, which has to do with generally around greed and fear, uh, insecurity, tribalism, etc. So we really need we need a, a leg up out of that kind of um, out of that kind of mediocrity that we can we can sink into as human beings. When I'm reading a book and they mention something some source that they found it from, I usually will write it down. So I've got this huge list of all these things, <laughs> kind of following <laughs> following the thread of knowledge, as I like to call it. And literally three times in the last week and a half, Emerson has come up. And before your book, I had only really, you know, seen a random Emerson quote here and there. I didn't even know him well enough to really understand what his main philosophy was. I just knew he was pretty good with words. <laughs> <laughs> good, with, good, with, good with an epigram, good with, a, good with a quote. Yes, exactly. I'm like, oh, this is quotable. This, can, <laughs> this belongs on Instagram. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. exactly why he was writing, right? But one of the teachings that you bring up in the beginning of your book is around self-reliance and how it's actually a spiritual practice. Can you go deeper on that? Yeah, this is huge. And it's actually the, the single greatest misconception about Emerson's teaching was that people confuse self-reliance with selfishness or self-absorption. And a lot of folks in the right wing have kind of taken self-reliance to mean, you know, no welfare state, no nanny state. Everyone has to depend on themselves. But that's not at all what self-reliance meant to Emerson. You know, Emerson self said that self-reliance is reliance on God, however you conceive God. Buddha nature, universal intelligence, uh, whatever, however you, you conceive of a, a power larger than we are. Uh, Self-reliance has to be connected to that or it just becomes uh, egomania. Uh, he, he said that there is nothing so weak as an egotist. So self-reliance as a spiritual practice means connecting to the force that's larger than we are, recognizing the uh, the interconnection and the interdependence of all living beings and touching into the part of ourselves, he called it our genius. It's the part of ourselves that's bigger than our personality. We all are aware of it. There's a something about us. There's a Melissa-ness that has followed you throughout your life. It was with you when you were a little girl. It was with you when you were a younger woman. Uh, and it's still with you now. And it's bigger uh, and deeper than just your personality. And when we touch into that essence of who we are, which is actually a spiritual quality, that's when we cultivate self-reliance, genuine self-reliance, the way Emerson meant it, uh, which is, as I said, it's not the same as, you know, looking out for number one, which is what we're taught to do in this culture. It's about looking out for number one in a world of other number ones. 
and really joining the human race in a more profound way. I wrote down a quote that I loved uh, that said, we do not determine what we think. We only open our senses, clear away as we can all obstruction from the facts and let God think through us. And I love that perspective because I've always been, well, probably for the last like 15 years, been on a pretty deep spiritual journey. Right now I'm listening to a talk by Ram Das around becoming nobody and just talking about how we kind of put on these suits and and we become different people uh, or become a character and we forget to kind of look beyond that to figure out what's really under that. And it's interesting when you think about this idea of individuality because I think so many of us cling to cling to originality as you call it in a form of the personality selves that we've created but we forget to kind of look deeper at that that self with a capital S to figure out what's original about us on a soul level, if that makes sense. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point. Uh, Emerson talked about the one mind or the over mind or the over soul. He had many different words for it. That is where our thoughts are coming from. You know, anyone who has ever tried to meditate will tell you that they can't control their thoughts. Thoughts come from we don't know where and they go on their own on their own time. So mindfulness isn't about controlling our thoughts. It's about uh, changing how we relate to our thoughts and recognizing that the witness in us is bigger than our thoughts. And it's that witness that is the uh, quality you're talking about that's bigger than the personality. You know, I worked with Ram Dass on one of his last books right after he had his stroke. I helped him for a year working on his book about conscious aging. And he said it to me over and over again that the one thing that doesn't diminish as we get older is wisdom. Everything else falls away. Everything else atrophies and gets worse. But wisdom actually builds. And wisdom comes from being attuned to that one mind that we all share. And when you are aware of that, you're not as threatened by your thoughts. You're not as, and you're not as, uh, as determined to try to control the mind, which, as you know, just creates more stress. I can remember the first time I was on a meditation retreat, just spending, spending, it was a silent retreat for two weeks. And I just spent most of the time just, just in agony, trying to make my thoughts go away until I finally got that it was a, a losing battle. And that the best thing that we can do is to allow the thoughts to come, realize that we are not the thoughts, that the witness part of who we are is bigger than our thoughts. And then the thoughts aren't as threatening. Then they they come in and then and they go. As Ramdas used to say, you just invite them in like little schmooze instead of being so threatened by your fears and your thoughts. You say, come in and have some tea. It's a very different approach to, um, you know, to negative thinking and to hyper hyper cogitation than we usually take in a in a in an egotistical culture in a where we're trained to control everything we're we're always at odds with ourselves we're always in conflict and with spiritual life no matter what the path is does uh, is it ends that conflict uh, it really realize, makes us see that we are bigger than our minds We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. 
That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I had this whole thought train just yesterday, actually. And it's funny because if somebody comes to me with a problem, I can very clearly be that kind of reflection for people of like, you know, these are just thoughts that you don't need to attach to them. But of course, it's a lot more difficult to do with myself sometimes, although I have gotten a lot better at creating that habit over the years. But one that I noticed just yesterday, it was a really rainy, gloomy day. And I always feel very low energy and almost depressed on those types of days. And it usually happens before I even realize the weather. And so that was sort of happening. And I'm like, ah, man, this just this day sucks for some reason. I don't know what it is. And then I'm like, oh, it's the weather. I'm like, oh, I hate the rain. And then I stopped because I'm in the middle of listening to that Ram Das uh, lecture, as well as going through your book for this interview. And I stopped and I kind of just laughed at myself. And I'm like, and I used Byron Katie's The Work. And I was just like, is that true? Do I actually hate the rain? And, I'm, and so I started to question that and challenge it. And all of a sudden, it was, it was crazy, the almost visceral response I had to this. It was like literally and figuratively a cloud lifted. And suddenly I was noticing how fresh the the rain smelled and how beautiful mm. the air felt. And it was like the perfect temperature. Mm. And 
I had this moment of realizing like three seconds ago, I almost felt miserable and now I feel elated. And all it took was questioning one thought and to your point, realizing that we don't need to identify with them. And so suddenly I just saw it as a thought that I have grown habit to attaching to. Mm-hmm. And who would I be if I just let that thought float away and just create a whole new one? And so all of a sudden, I was like, I love the rain. And it completely <laughs> transformed right. my entire day. Right, right. You changed the story. Yeah, and it's so much easier <laughs> than, than I thought it would have been 10 seconds before that. Yeah. And that's because, as Byron Katie always says, the mind is like a child and it believes what we tell it until we question until we question what it's telling us, until we question our, our, our thoughts. And so you questioned it and, and you realized, and, and then you came into the moment of actually smelling the rain and feeling how you actually were. And, and you realized that, the, that the, the thoughts were just a narrative and that that narrative was not the truth. And realizing that is a quantum, it's a quantum leap in self-awareness. You know, the vast majority of people don't know that they are not their thoughts. We're so completely identified with our minds, particularly in this culture, with no transcendental perspective or, or, or context. We we believe that we are our minds, and that's why you know that's why depression rates and suicide rates and addiction rates are through the roof because we're completely identified with our pain, uh, and that's one thing that Emerson uh, talks about a lot is that when you realize that pain is connected to what he called the exterior life. It's not part of who we actually are essentially. That's a breath of fresh air. That's a huge uh, relief when you realize that you don't have to be trapped inside this helmet of worry and stress and bad, bad thoughts. I have overcome a lot of different addictive tendencies, full-blown addictions, eating disorders, things like that throughout my life. And and it seems like whenever one whenever one is overcome, there's a new one that pops up. And the message that I keep getting recently is around materialism. And I'm like a full-blown Taurus if you're into astrology. <laughs> like There's like something deep in my nature that loves materialistic things. And I really think that they make me happy, <laughs> at wow. least for a few minutes after I receive something new. And thank you, Amazon, for just being my <laughs> current drug that. dealer. <laughs> Yes. And so uh, I've, I've been loving reading your book just because it's another way for me to kind of go inward when I feel myself reaching outward. But one of the things that Emerson talks about is using self-inquiry as a doorway to wisdom. What are some of the ways that you use this? Well, primarily uh, through writing. And, you know, I, I teach writing uh, for self-inquiry and writing for self-realization. I teach a method called writing to awaken. And what we do is use very targeted, pointed prompts for penetrating through uh, the belief systems and the mind's stories that are, are weighing us down. So for me, writing is a, is a great way of, of doing self-inquiry. I've been doing it since I was a kid. When I was growing up in that household I was telling you about, I, I started to write when I was maybe seven or eight years old, when I was so confused, there was nobody to talk to. And so I would just lock myself in the bathroom usually, because it was the only place I had any privacy. And I would just say, what's going on? And I would write it down. And I found that when I did that, uh, I immediately felt better. It's not that the problems went away, but I felt like I had 
perspective and that I was grounded in myself. It, it gave me back my core, you could say. So for me, writing has, has been a lifelong practice of self-inquiry and using self-observation as a path of freedom. Uh, but of course, we can do it many other ways. People go to therapy, uh, deep dialogue, deep conversation can serve some of that same purpose. But what matters is that we really ask deep questions, which is something that we're not trained to do. But until you ask the question, very often, you can't, you can't open the door. The question is the key. And so one of the things I, I teach people uh, to do is to find the key, find the right question. What is actually uh, hurting you? You know, what do you actually long for? You know, where do you feel inauthentic? You know, where are you not telling the truth? That's a that's another great question to explore. So whether through writing or another means, uh, di asking questions is the key, is the path to uh, is the path to freedom and and uh, self-knowledge. You know, that's why when Socrates said, know thyself, he was saying you need to ask yourself questions in order to know yourself. You know, the unexamined life isn't worth living. And how do we examine ourselves? We examine ourselves uh, through questions. It's, it's actually our superpower. And it's one that we don't pay enough attention to. I love that prompt. Where are you not telling the truth? I feel like I could sit that sit with that one for a while. You could. We all could. It's a huge it's a huge question. And it's a question that's ever renewing. So uh, you can write about that question you know, every day and get different answers. And that's, that's why writing for self-inquiry, writing to awaken, which is what I teach, is a practice because uh, it, it, it goes on and on. You know, I have people who have taken the same uh, self-inquiry classes with me for years with the same topics. And I say, well, why do you keep coming back to the same class? And they say, we keep, I keep getting different answers. So that's the beauty of self-inquiry is uh, it's, it's always renewing itself and you always get new information. And it's really useful sometimes to even ask yourself the same question day after day for a week and notice how your response evolves and how you get deeper into the answer. A few years ago, I was meditating and I, I use self-inquiry quite often in my long walks or during meditation uh, because I can just have these really long inner dialogues with myself. And it's mm. it's kind of fun because sometimes I think I know the answer until I dialogue for long enough. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't even see that in right. myself or uh, that would not have come up in the first minute, but in minute 15, it, <laughs> it finally does. But one of the things that popped up and I wrote in my journal years back was that I started to believe that the purpose of life was to know yourself and understand yourself. And so when I read that, that's something that Emerson also believed. I was like, yes, that must have been from source or, or universal consciousness in some way. Yes. And yeah, it, it was, and it is, and it, it's, you find it in all of the uh, great spiritual traditions is this, you know, this uh, injunction to uh, discover who you are, uh, whatever means you, you use, you know, until we do that, whether we're practicing Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or, or Islam, uh, until you do that, you're living as a stranger to yourself. Uh, you're, 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 it, your life is a case of mistaken identity. You know, people talk about imposter syndrome. Well, gosh, we are all of us imposters until we take this uh, journey towards self-knowledge because we're just, we're, otherwise we are masquerading as the personality 
which is nothing but many different stories and 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 emotions and biases and uh, all, all kind of congealed into an idea of self. That's not who we are. And that's the value of crisis uh, and, and disaster, as many people found during the pandemic, is that it explodes the story. It, 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 it Suddenly, you're, you can't rely on the old narrative anymore. And while that's disconcerting, it's also liberating. And you look at, you can see yourself in new ways. And many people, as the externals uh, fell away during the pandemic, were able to see themselves and their lives in very different ways because they were not just caught in the kind of the trance of habit and the trance of of conditioned you know conditioned living and and so that's what any spiritual practice worth its salt does is it it shakes up your idea of self uh, and it puts you in touch with the thing that doesn't change you know the thing in you that uh, that is bigger than your your circumstances uh, but until you do that, until anyone, any of us does that, we're we're living on the surface of things. And that was Emerson's great fear, was that he and that the people he cared about, even his audiences, his readers, would stay on the outside of things, the surface of life. Uh, life has a lot of beautiful surfaces, but they are only surfaces until we penetrate those uh, and get to the heart uh, of the matter, then we might as well you know, not be here at all. You know, that's why they said the unexamined life is not worth living because it loses a central value because as you said our purpose here uh, is to know ourselves it's why we we have uh, have a human incarnation uh, is to realize who we are uh, but that takes practice i have always sort of been a rebel <laughs> and so i loved the whole section on originality because it's i think when i was younger it was something that i feel was looked down upon in many of my environments. And now I, I'm lucky because I work for myself. I've created kind of my own life. And so none of that stuff really burdens me much anymore. I mean, it still does. Of course, we all still want to belong and fit in. And one harsh comment can send me in a spiral. But for the most part, I feel like I've created a life that I've really wanted. It's something I've been working on for like eight years now. And so there's a lot of people, though, that that I know that are living kind of on autopilot and they don't even see it because, you know, they're not used to self-inquiry, but you don't realize how how we just get stuck in habits and kind of just keep doing the same thing over and over again in order to kind of fit in and belong and and be accepted and and all of that. And one of the things that just really struck a chord that helped me to sort of see a shadow where, I don't know, where sometimes when I think I'm beyond something, but then one one little sentence mm. will will make me realize how foolish that is. But it was the sentence that, that said, we often reject our originality for no other reason than that it is ours. And in that, in just that sentence, I was able to sort of conjure up a bunch of things in myself that I reject or I or I beat up, whether it's looks or parts of my personality. What did you what do you mean by that sentence? Can you go deeper on that? Yeah, well, just as you were saying, we we reject our often our best thoughts, our first thoughts, our, our, our original genius, the things that are most particular and unique to us for no other reason than that, 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 than that they are ours. We tend to undervalue ourselves and undervalue other people. And so one of Emerson's big teachings around originality as well as nonconformity 
is learning to trust our original nature, to trust our, our unique voice. Uh, and that takes work. Uh, elsewhere, he says something, I paraphrase, but it's uh, something like the, the greatest accomplishment uh, is to live your own life in a world that is constantly trying to uh, make you live someone else's. And that's, that is, it's going against the current to say, no, I'm going to listen to myself. I'm going to trust myself. We're not taught to do that. We're taught by, you know, well-meaning parents to toe the line and color inside the lines and get along. And, and of course they want us to be socialized and, and, you know, not be, not be outsiders, but we lose so much of our uh, particularity uh, and, and our own joy by imitating other people. Buckminster Fuller, the th systems theorist, said, everyone is born a genius, but the process of living degeniuses us. And that's what you're talking about. We get degeniused by the desire for approval, uh, the impulse to conform, uh, and and conditioning education that doesn't teach us to, uh, to trust uh, what's unique to us. You know, we're always taught to look outside for answers. When in all of your education were you ever taught to look inside for answers? It just is it just doesn't happen. Yeah, that knowledge came after I was out of official schooling and started seeking right, on exactly, my own. Exactly. Exactly. And I just found it so funny that I had this whole story in my head about again, it's a another area that I think I've evolved beyond or something like that. And then I'm like, even this is a story that I'm habituated to saying. <laughs> if I would just, I don't know, stop thinking I'm above or beyond anything, then there's always more shadows to kind of shed light on. You had a quote in the book also by Young who said, you do not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. <laughs> and I was like, yes. all right, that's going to be another affirmation that goes on my wall as well. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. You had a quote in the book also by Young who said, you do not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. <laughs> and I was like, yes. all right, that's going to be another affirmation that goes on my wall as well. And that's huge, especially in the spiritual world. You know, there's so much uh, desire to kind of leap into the light 
uh, and and sort of skip the mess, skip the the crooked parts, the mismatched parts, the the shadow parts. But that's where our character comes from. That's where you can't have yin without yang. You know, that's where our depth comes from. Is is from our, our shadow parts and and getting to know them and making space for them to be there. You know, one of Waldo's big insights is what he called the law of compensation which is that for every sweet, there's a sour, for every sour, there's a sweet. And for every virtue you have, that it, it has a negative side. And for every negative quality you have, there is, there is a virtue. And so when you look at life in that circular way, in, in a non-dual way, you realize you can't get rid of your devils, so to speak, without also losing your angels. So looking at the shadow doesn't mean um, getting rid of the, of the contents of the shadow. It means honoring them and seeing where the gifts are that you may have overlooked in the shadow and allowing that you're always going to have imperfections and parts of yourself that are not uh, what you want them to be. And, and you're going to have greed and you're going to have envy and you're going to have insecurity and all of these human emotions. That's not a problem. In fact, each of those has a positive uh, quality to them if we take the time to look at it carefully. But what happens is that we just reject them out of hand. We avoid the shadow, we reject our our faults, we um, and we end up missing what they have to teach us. Because our faults, of course, like all of our losses, all pain, uh, is a guide if we listen to it. What is it trying to teach us? And until we take the time to ask that question, we don't really grow uh, until that time, we're, we're just really victims, kind of, you know, the uh, victims of circumstance, and we feel like life is happening to us. Uh, and we forget that, in fact, this is a, a big cosmic classroom that we're in, and that there's information in even negative and painful experiences that if we don't look at, we're really missing the point. That's uh, a very, it's a, this is a really crucial uh, thing that that we need to look at in particularly in a culture like ours that's all that doesn't appreciate vulnerability and it's all about meritocracy and achievement and getting ahead uh, we need to take a big step back and and a big step inside uh, to acknowledge who we really are uh, and when we do that it makes us empathic toward other people as well because of course one of the reasons we reject the other is that we reject the other in ourselves and as long as we do that, we are, you know, the world is going to be in, you know, in turmoil. Yeah, that's been a big lesson for me is that when I find myself feeling really judgmental towards other people, I know that there's something about that that's starting within myself and vice versa. When I feel I'm beating myself up, I'm like, man, this is a, a big blind spot and compassion for others as well. And so it's always sort of reflecting it it back to me. And And I think one of the things that I've that I'm learning is that we live in such a linear world. It's like time moves forward, mm -hmm. uh, success is up a ladder. And, and so I have often looked at my own spiritual growth in that same way, like I'm moving up some ladder of enlightenment. And I think that does a real disservice because, like I said before, <laughs> as soon as I think I'm over something, it seems to come and bite me back in the ass. <laughs> and oh, and yeah. so I, one thing that I heard Ram Dass say recently was he was just talking about something completely different, but he was talking about different dimensions or on a different plane. And he's like, and don't think of it as a higher or lower dimension. And there's something about that that just sort of snapped into me where I'm like, why am I looking at my growth in that way at all either? As you said, we're 
in a more circular world, everything is, all of those shadows are existing at once and, and one thing's not lower or higher than the other. It's all still there, all still needs light, all still needs to be looked at. And so rather than thinking that I've like moved above or beyond something, I'm starting to expect that it's still just going to be there. And maybe it's oh, just not yeah. bugging me quite as much as it was the day before. Exactly. And this is, a, this is a really important point because we set ourselves up for a fall when we think that our wounds are going to go away or our triggers are going to go away. They don't go away, but how we relate to them changes. You know, I think of it as more of a spiral. You know, you come around and you're in a similar place, but you're a little bit, uh, you have a little more objectivity about it. You're a little bit, you're a little bit uh, more disidentified from it. But the the issue was never going to go away. Uh, I mean, I can tell you, I've I've spent a lot of time with many great spiritual teachers over the years, and they all have their issues. Every single one of them, uh, the most enlightened masters uh, in the world, have dealt with their greed and their envy and their insecurity and their selfishness and their will to power and and their, their human failings. It's part of being a human being. One of the things I appreciated so much about Ramdas was he was so transparent about his own failings. And he always called himself a work in progress. Uh, and when he didn't die from his stroke, for example, he realized, uh, I have a lot more work to do. And he did. Uh, and so when we look at ourselves with humility, instead of uh, trying to get somewhere, trying to achieve some state of perfection, we come much closer to the truth of things. You know, the greatest teachers are always the most humble. Uh, so the minute anyone tells you that they're over it or that they've, they've, you know, they've moved beyond, uh, you should run in the other direction. You know, there, there's a wonderful talk by a psychologist named Pauline Boss called "The Myth of Closure," uh, and she talks about the idea, this idea that that we're going to that our wounds are going to close and that our pain is going to somehow there's going to be this closure to it is uh, is a complete illusion. And, and if we believe that, we're always going to feel like, when, what, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I make that go away? Because nothing goes away. <laughs> nothing goes away, but we can include it in who we are. We can get bigger you know, in terms of more, you know, more mentally expansive so that it's not as threatening to us. But go away? Absolutely not. That's, it's not how healing works. You touched on it earlier uh, around the teaching that the qualities that we resist in ourselves are actually crucial to our wholeness. What is an example of someone channeling a trait that they might perceive as negative into something positive? Oh, gosh. Well, I can use myself as an example. I used to be extremely insecure and very introverted, and I had a lot of trouble connecting to people. So I became very nose i became very nosy in conversation i would ask questions sort of non-stop as a way of covering up my own insecurities and it's how i learned how to bond from the time i was a, a very young kid uh, and eventually that turned into my career it became turned into my work as a writer and as a journalist first and as a writer now as a teacher is my life has become all about asking questions but it started for me as as kind of a bad habit you know, I could be pretty obnoxious about it when I was when I was a kid, but I kind of channeled that insecurity in a way that it now informs my work. So that's 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 one one example. Uh, but I've known people who were um, 
Well, just look at Lizzo. Look at someone like Lizzo. <laughs> you know, Lizzo is at one time Lizzo's Lizzo's obesity would have been the the end of her career. There would have been simply no possibility for her to to uh, have a career as as a pop star if she were trying to hide her obesity, if she was ashamed of her obesity. But what she's done is turned her obesity, her obesity into a virtue. Uh, and look at and look at how people love her for it, and how empowering that message has been for a lot of other people who have who have uh, quote unquote issues with their weight. So that that's what originality does. I used to work for Andy Warhol. This is in the book, and you know Andy was a very uh, shy, painfully shy, completely weird, outcast kind of guy. He turned all of those weird qualities that were such a, a a burden so painful to him into his public image it became it became his you know his thing uh, and it became very cool to be like andy warhol but you know he he started off as as somebody who could barely talk to people he was so he was so inhibited and and, and self-hating so we can take the things in us that are wounded, that are limitations, that are the sources of pain, make them our own, and then transmute them into something that's creative, that helps us connect with other people, and that helps us to feel more comfortable inside our own skins. One example with me is around ADHD. When you're a kid, it seems like all of the messages around ADHD are negative, and I didn't get an official diagnosis until I was a little bit older in my teens. And then I remember coming across something fairly early on about the potential for ADHD to be a superpower and read all of these traits about myself that I already loved because nobody had, I had never associated them <laughs> with ADHD. I didn't know. I just knew that when I'm interested in something, I hyper-focus I mean, give me a rabbit hole to go down if it's one that I'm that I actually want to learn about. I would even in my teens, I would barely sleep and learn everything that there was. And so now to this day, I mean, even recently, there was a, a rabbit hole that kind of pulled on my thought threads, as I call it. And I, I couldn't stop reading. I've read like like 14 books on one topic in the last like two months just because it's so interesting. But that that passion in that area is what helps me do what I do. It's what helps me bring information to other people. And if I were to have only focused on that negative, I know that there's negatives that need to be mitigated, that I, I have all of my systems to kind of get around and, and keep me structured and all of that. But, but it's just in the perspective, which is a whole nother section in your book, that just perspective shift of like, what if this isn't a negative? What if this is just guidance into how I need to structure myself, but it's overwhelmingly a positive? And that's how I've been able to view it since seeing it that way. Yeah, that's good. That's great. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. 
It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Well, I mean, look at look at Van Gogh. I mean, the reason Van Gogh painted the way he did is that the is that he had that you know that inner ear uh, issue and that and that uh, condition that he worked with. That's why we have, we have that very unique you know style of painting. He wouldn't have had it if he if he were quote unquote normal. And so, getting over this myth of normal uh, and instead saying, what can I do with my particular set of limited, imperfect uh, but interesting, you know, qualities. How can I? How can I optimize them? What can I do uh, creatively with them? How can they enlarge me as a person? Uh, what? Can, how can I connect better with other uh, other people because of the the things that I consider to be my faults or my flaws? That's when we start to live a transformational life. You know, it's all well and good to you know when you when you have. You know, when you're you know good looking and have a lot of money and you're successful, it, that you know it's easy to kind of cakewalk through life. But for the other ninety nine percent of the world, you know, we're dealing often with what feel like handicaps that we can't overcome. So instead of looking at them as handicaps to be overcome, we can look at them as opportunities to do things differently in a way that's unique to us. And that's when the unique stuff comes out. An, an even better example, you just asked me about uh, how to turn a weakness to a strength. Someone I, I interview uh, in the book was a photographer who lost his sight. Uh, and everyone said, your career is over. You'll never, you, you, obviously you can't take pictures with 3% of your vision left. And he said, to hell with that. He said, I'm going to become the, wor or the world's worst, the world's first blind photographer. And he invented a whole different way of taking pictures with a large frame camera and using an assistant. And what happened is he went from being a very highly paid, but just sort of average commercial photographer to being a world-class artist. And since he lost his sight, he's had over 40 solo shows around the world with this new body of work that would not have happened if he hadn't gone blind. So this isn't just kind of feel good, you know, hoo-ha. Uh, this is this is a very sophisticated uh, strategy for living. It's a philosophical choice to look at what what is there instead of always at what isn't there. And, and of course, the negativity bias in our brain tends to tends to look for what isn't there. But when we can use what's there in new and and creative ways, uh, all kinds of things are possible.
I went through a, a pretty big trauma in my 20s, and I remember feeling like my life was ruined. And through my process of self-inquiry over the next, I mean, took about a decade, what I what has become my life philosophy now is to use your limitations as guideposts. And so yeah. whereas we're we're used to just kind of seeing all the stop signs of what's been taken away, now I'm like, well, what is this funneling me toward? Yeah. And in in doing that, it makes everything so easy <laughs> because then it's like you don't have a thousand options anymore that you're going between constantly second guessing yourself if you're choosing the right one. Things being taken away from me has actually been <laughs> so joyous because I'm like, well, that eliminates 90% of those options. I only have 10% left. <laughs> this makes my job a whole lot easier. Exactly. No, exactly right. Yeah, it's true. The, your limitations uh, help. They, they become like guideposts. I think of it as the frame in it with a painting. You know, you don't have a painting without a, well, you can technically, but you know what I'm saying. A frame and the idea of limitation is what I'm taught, is what I'm playing with. The frame is part of what makes the painting possible. Uh, and so uh, understanding that your limitations are part of the creative process, they actually help you with the creative process, uh, is, is a big, uh, big insight. One of the things you talk about in your book is that nowhere are we more delusional than in the domain of self-appraisal. What do you mean by that? Well, we all have dysmorphia. We, we, uh, we don't see ourselves clearly. We, it's like living in a, with a, a funhouse mirror or something. When we look inside, the reflection that we see is not the truth. It's not accurate or what other people see. Uh, it's filtered through our fears, our desires, our biases, our wounds. And so we, uh, we don't have a clear uh, vision of ourselves, which is why self-inquiry is, is so important. So the fact is we are deluded uh, about who we are. Uh, and that's why it's so use. That's why it's so useful to uh, bounce things off of other people and to have people around us who know us, who can reflect us back uh, to ourselves. Uh, because in the funhouse mirror of our own minds, we are distorted. You know, we, we're so, sometimes I, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen that where you 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 look at a photograph uh, and all you see is the one thing that you don't like about yourself in the photograph, and someone else looks at it and says you look great. You know, we don't have a clear uh, self appraisal, and we tend to be perfectionist. You know, we tend to want you know want all of our flaws to be gone, and so we focus on our flaws, uh, and they become exaggerated. Uh, and they come to define how we look at ourselves. And that is simply not, uh, it, it's not based in reality. Uh, it's based in, in our imagination. Uh, and so we, that's why it's really important to question, as we were saying earlier, to, you, to question the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Uh, who do you think you are? That's a great question to, for self-inquiry. Is, uh, who do you think you are? You know, uh, describe yourself to someone who's never met you. That can be a very revealing prompt to use with people. Uh, describe yourself to people who've never met you. Describe yourself in 50 words or less to someone who has never met you. If you do that, you'll see what you emphasize, what you miss, where your blind spots are, you know, where your, uh, what, where your um, longings are, what you want to be true that you sort of exaggerate. So where we are delusional when it comes to our own self-image. It reminds me of something Ram Dass said, actually, where 
like if a paint he said something around a, a painter painting a a big gray cloud but then he puts it in a frame that's too small for it and so all you see is just gray and it's like oh this is just like a gray picture until <laughs> you actually take it out of the frame and you see the edges and in the beautiful sky and and in the same way we are more than than we see and and everyone that knows us including ourselves doesn't really see the full picture because we're all kind of zooming in on that one thing the things that are important to us the the way somebody else makes us feel we've we characterize everybody including ourselves and so i think we'd have to kind of get some feedback to start getting a a bigger picture but i often wonder that like what do what do other people see me as <laughs> i i didn't uh an activity back when I was first starting my entrepreneur journey where I actually asked like 11 people that I knew from different areas of my life, like what my superpower was. And it was just so interesting because I got a lot of very similar responses. And mm. it was something that I didn't see in myself at all at that time. And it was around basically taking information from tons of different sources and and connecting it and explaining it in ways that people could understand. And that was not something that I saw in myself at all and actually ended up giving me the idea to start a podcast with all of the rabbit hole knowledge that I've accumulated over the years. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 very interesting. No, we, we don't. That's why we're not islands unto ourselves. You know, we don't have the ability to, we're not omniscient. We don't have 360 degree uh, perspective. Uh, and it's important to uh, check in with the people who know us and, and to you know, be willing to hear what they have to say, you know, because you know, we don't always want to take that information in. Uh, but it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, it's essential you know, not to get lost in the not not to get lost in our own delusions of, of, of who we believe ourselves to be, because it's 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 nothing but uh, it's nothing but a myth. Uh, and the myths and myths, as we know, uh, can be changed. And that's, again, that's why the value of crisis and disaster and things going wrong is, is so important on, on, a, on a spiritual path. Because until that happens, uh, it's very easy to kind of keep playing that character and, and keep playing until uh, our self-image becomes more and more entrenched. That's also why travel is important and why people love travel so much. It's not just to see new things. It's when you leave your familiar context, you know yourself in a different way. Uh, when you see yourself reflected in, in, the, in, in a different culture, uh, your sense of self expands. And then you start to realize how malleable your sense of self actually is. And that's what spiritual practice does, it well, does as well. It gives us a larger context. So instead of seeing ourselves as this, these teeny little uh, personalities, these selfish little people, um, we realize that we are these extraordinary beings that are, have a transcendent dimension to us that we have barely begun to, to explore. And that's when life gets interesting. That's when life gets really exciting. So we've talked a lot about self-inquiry, but another area that you teach around is um, around how how reasoning has its limitations. And there was a quote by Emerson that said, nothing is so conducive to spiritual growth as this capacity for logical and accurate analysis of everything that happens to us. And so I'm curious, that's sort of a pitfall of trying to logic everything, all of our experiences when we're processing it. But that's also part of self-inquiry. So what do we need to sort of be aware of when we're in that process so we don't get caught in the trap of just reasoning? 
That's a great question. It's a really important question because, as you say, we rely on reason and ration, rationale to do self-inquiry, but reason itself is a pretty weak instrument, particularly compared to uh, the emotions, for example. The emotions are an ancient part of who we are. Uh, reason is a fairly new development. It's the most recent part of our brain's formation is the, the neocortex and the ability to, 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 to reason. Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist, compares it to uh, compares the emotions to an elephant, and then reason is like the little man on the back of the elephant trying to steer it this way or that, and and it doesn't work. You know, we can't talk ourselves out of feelings. So all of that is to say that reason is important, uh, it's powerful, uh, and it's limited. So when you're doing self inquiry, self inquiry isn't just a head practice. Self inquiry is a whole body practice. So I've always encouraged people to notice how they're feeling in their bodies. What are their emotions telling them? Uh, are there, when they write about that, are, there, are their hands getting clammy? You know, where does fear come up? You know, where do you feel um, excitement in the body? When does desire come up? All of these things are part of self-inquiry. So you use, uh, you use reason kind of like a flashlight, uh, but it, a flashlight it can only see what's within its you know, perimeter. So we understand that there are bigger, there are things beyond the flashlight. The flashlight kind of helps us to navigate, but it's not the entire picture. Uh, the emotions and the intuition, uh, the ineffable parts of who we are, are as important to our experience as, as our logical mind and our logical thoughts. So we use it because it's the best we have to work with, but it also can be a pretty weak instrument. It reminds me of the section of your book around contradiction. I loved this part because it it's just goes to show you how we have all of these methods of self-inquiry, like you were just talking about, emotions, reasoning. But there was a quote that said, no challenge is more paradoxical than untangling our biological, emotional, and spiritual impulses. What the heart desires, the mind often rejects, and what the loins crave may be an anathema to the conscious. I love that because <laughs> it's like so often I'll be reading a book about like how emotions are a gateway to the soul. And then all of a sudden it's all about emotions. <laughs> and then, right, and then right. I get back into my reasoning brain and it's all about reasoning. And, but it's so true. It's like uh, you talk about how wisdom is found in the middle way. Talk about that. Well, that's that's Buddha, of, of course, and and the fact that you know we're always we tend toward extremes, we tend toward polarities, and that wisdom and truth are often found you know, often found in the middle way. the The problem is that these different parts of who we are speak different languages. So there's a heart language, there's a head language, there is a a, a gut language, there's a groin language. You know, different parts of who we are speak different languages and and have different impulses. And so what we do to the best of our ability, using this limited uh, rationality, this limited logic that we have, is try to determine what is the, the golden mean, you know, what is the, 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 uh, the harmonious center uh, that all of the different languages share. Uh, instead of being pulled in this direction or that direction, we try to say, what is the uh, underlying truth that connects them? Uh, so, for example, if your loins are saying one thing and your heart is saying another uh, and your head is saying another, uh, 
uh, you try to, we try to step back and look at what is the large, what is the larger truth, which is another way of saying the middle way. What's the larger truth uh, that actually connects these diverse impulses? Uh, and it's almost always around love. Uh, it's almost always around connection. It's almost always about freedom. You know, those are the universals. Those are the universals that can guide us uh, through this this cacophony of of conflicting desires and conflicting impulses. You know, there there's there are immediate desires, and then there's a lar- there's a larger long term desire. Uh, and so we want to focus as much as possible uh, on the long term desires. On on what are our actual what are actual intentions in a, in a larger sense, and that will help to guide us through the through the confusion when we keep an eye on what is our bigger intention, uh, and not be swayed or deceived by the the impulse of the moment, uh, which can can just often misleads us. They're not in. It's not. We can't avoid them completely. And spont- there's some there there are good things about spontaneity. Uh, but when it comes to the big questions in our lives, the big uh, moments in our lives, we want to be able to step back and say, what is the what is that my larger intention here? And that's what helps us to find the middle way. I see a lot of Venn diagrams in my future of processing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I love leaving listeners with a practice or, or something for them to focus on to kind of ground what we've been talking about into reality for the week. If you were to give them one thing to focus on, what would that be? I would start by asking them to take 15 or 20 minutes uh, to write about uh, the question, where in your life uh, do you feel inauthentic, untruthful, or out of integrity? That's a great place to start. And it's, it's a question that we can you know, we can ask on a regular basis as a way of tuning ourselves to, to what is what is deeply true so that we're not we don't lose sight of the, the larger intention in the moment to moment you know, confusion of, of living. What sorts of answers have you pulled out of yourself when you've asked yourself that question? Oh, gosh, it can be anything from um, I don't I'm eating too much meat. Uh, to that person and I don't belong in each other's lives anymore, to uh, I'm moving in the wrong direction with this book, uh, to I've, ha- I've had enough of, of that kind of meditation for a while, or that teacher who I don't want to work with anymore. Uh, I- I'm pretty sensitive to my own well-being. I've been doing this for many, many years. And so I, I, if I ask myself the question, where am I, where do I feel inauthentic or what story am I telling myself that isn't true? That's another way of asking the same question. I'm able to determine where the pain is or where the discomfort or the imbalance is pretty quickly. Uh, and the more you do it, the more finely tuned you, you, you get to your, your own inner life. Well, that's a good place to start. Well, thank you so much for all of the passion that you've put into this book. I have been interested in stoicism for a while. I have Ryan Holiday's The Daily Stoic, but I haven't been able to really um, visualize all of the core concepts as well as I have with your book now. And we've only we only touched on about four of the 12 big lessons in stoicism in your book. And so for all of the listeners that are interested in getting a deeper understanding of stoicism and how it's helpful in our lives, 
This is such a great entry point. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Through my website, which is uh, markmatusic.com. Uh, people can also check out my uh, my spiritual, my self-inquiry group. It's called theseekersforum.com. Uh, and there's lots of information in there about the book, about stoicism. And if folks want to reach out to me personally, I'm always happy to correspond. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 306. Your challenge for this week is to find that pause. You know, that little space between what happens to us and how we respond to it. And once you find the pause, use it for self-inquiry. Or you can think of it as using it to challenge your usual patterns. There's no right or wrong way to do this, but I'll bring you back to some of the questions that I find helpful. How will I judge this? How will I respond? Does this say more about me or about them? Or does this say more about me or what they're just going through right now? What's the kindest way that I can see this? How can I view this person with compassion? How can I view this situation with compassion? Like I said, there's no right or wrong way to do this. And as you start practicing, what I recommend is allowing the pause to sit for a little longer than you're used to so that you have time to reach within and come up with your own questions. This is the process of self-inquiry. This is what we want to get good at, is figuring out how to challenge yourself, how to dig deep and find the answers that you're looking for within you, and trust that they're there just waiting to be risen. If you loved this episode, please consider sharing it by taking a screenshot and sharing it on Instagram, tagging Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast. You can check out our membership options at mindlove.com slash membership. There's all sorts of goodies in there. It's a really exciting community to be a part of. You can find all of my sponsor promos and deals at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.